welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today we're going to be talking about something that I am the expert on. (laughs) One of many things that I consider myself the expert on. Um, But seriously, um, I'm going to be talking today about Michael Jackson. I'm putting him on my couch and going behind the mask. And I wasn't really kidding about being the expert on him. It all started when, uh, in approximately 1990, I was asked to be the psychiatric consultant to the first major book biography about Michael that was written by J. Randy Taraborelli. And so what I had to do for that was to read all of the rest of the book, basically, and other information that the author had gathered. And he had done amazing research. In fact, that book, which he updated um, after the trial and so on, um, that book is still considered the authoritative biography about Michael Jackson. So um, since that time, since around the early 1990s, Uh, whenever the media wanted to know why Michael Jackson was doing his latest crazy thing, they would come to me. And as you well know, over the years, there have been many so-called crazy things that Michael Jackson has done. So I was doing lots of media about him, uh, analyzing him, explaining why he was doing what he was doing. And, um... And then uh, there came a time when he had children. And um, then I became particularly interested in how uh, all these so-called crazy things were making him a less and less fit father. And so I turned my attention to um, the, the safety of his own kids, his three children, uh, his son, Uh, Prince, and then his daughter, and then his uh, younger son, and um, and I started, and and really what happened? So it was kind of you know it was kind of sort of the the usual. um, What did he do now, and and why did he do it, and what can we tell from that, and you know, and and with this added twist of what does that mean in terms of the safety of his kids? So it would come about that I would, after most of the interviews, after he had the kids, started having the kids, I would come away and I would say to some of the people, you know, generally off camera, or at least they didn't include this, um, uh, I really, somebody should take his children away from him. He's really not a fit father. And whoever was around would agree with me, the interviewer and the cameraman and so on would say, yes, you know, those kids are in danger. And this went on until um, he, in the fall of 2002, that was the time when he did the very memorable hanging of his youngest son, who he calls Blanket, um, outside of the window of his hotel room in Berlin. 
and he dangled him. He had a towel over his head, and he was holding him alternately with one hand or two hands. And now, this was... um, this was several stories high, you know. He wasn't on the ground floor. And so, obviously, this was the most egregious example to date that we knew of, that the world knew of, um, of his being a danger to his children. So, I again said the same thing. Somebody should take his children away, especially now. Look what he just did. And, again, everybody agreed with me. And as I walked away, I thought to myself, well, who am I thinking, is going to take his children away. The mayor of Los Angeles, who actually would contact uh, CPS, Child Protective Services, and tell them to investigate him that he is a danger to his children. And, of course, the answer was nobody. And in California, as a psychiatrist, I am a mandated reporter. Um, of child abuse, as are other doctors and teachers and nurses and a a group of people like that. And so technically, even though he nor his children were my patients, um, I still felt as though I had a duty to report this. So in November of 2002, I sent a letter to... um, Randall Hudson in Santa Barbara and the Department of Child Protective Services in Santa Barbara. And I wrote, um, Dear Child Protective Services, as a board-certified psychiatrist, I am mandated to report suspected child abuse. I am writing to report such abuse on the part of Michael Jackson. He lives in Neverland, in single quotes, I mean double quotes, (laughs) in Santa Ynez, California, with three young children. Son, Prince Michael, approximately five years old. Daughter, Paris, approximately four years old. Son, Prince Michael II, approximately nine months to one year old. The mother of the two eldest children is Debbie Rowe, a former nurse who worked for Dr. Klein, a Beverly Hills dermatologist. By now, most people are aware of the recent videotaped episode in which Michael dangled his youngest son off the fourth or fifth floor balcony of a hotel in Berlin. I personally have watched the videotape several times and have been interviewed by the media to analyze it. It is a clear-cut case of child endangerment. In addition to the obvious physical danger the child was in by being dangled precariously at a height that could cause death if the child fell, he is also living in a in psychological danger with Michael as his single parent. As a psychiatrist, I was alarmed at the way that Michael had dehumanized him, putting a towel over his head and holding him like a rag doll. The child hit his legs on the railing, and Michael showed no evidence of being aware that the child could be in pain. The child flailing about was an obvious emotional distress, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, I talk about him lifting his, his, the baby up by his crotch, no human connection, and then um, I talked about other reasons to suspect child abuse, his isolating the children from their mothers. Um, Michael had an extremely dysfunctional childhood of his own, causing him severe psychological problems, such as not wanting or being able to grow up to be a man, no less a father. Then I talk about the lawsuit uh, by Jordy Chandler, where he was... um, where Jordy alleged that he was being sexually abused by Michael. He was a young boy. And anyhow, I close by saying it therefore behooves you to conduct an investigation of the situation. 
I would recommend that the children be placed back with their mothers or with other family members if they are psychologically appropriate until Michael begins intensive psychiatric treatment and parenting classes. Now, um, after that, uh, when I followed up, Mr. Snedden, uh, Mr. Hudson said that, um, that they couldn't, they tried to investigate, but they couldn't really do anything because um, there were gates in front of his house, Michael's house in Neverland. And now, yes, it's true that there were gates, there was a guard gate and all of that. But if you um, think about the typical reports the Child Protective Services get, um, the, the fathers or the families um, that are being suspected of child abuse do not generally live behind guard gates. And in any case, even if they did, you know, the Child Protective Services gets through to the family one way or another. Sometimes they go to the school um, to see the child when the child is at school and takes the child out of the classroom to, to question them. So, I mean, this was just all a matter of political clout that Michael had um, because he was a celebrity. So then, um, fortunately, there was a uh, video, a, a documentary that aired, and... Um, I then, on February 11th, 2003, so just a few months later, I was able to uh, write another letter to Child Protective Services, and I, um, in this one, which I included 18 reasons why they should take the children away until Michael got psychiatric treatment and parenting lessons, and I used for um, the source of a lot of these 18 reasons, this documentary that had aired on national television, of course, in, in uh, the UK as well. So um, I talk about how, you know, how could you possibly close my complaint so rapidly? I was telling that to Child Protective Services. Uh, the world has witnessed him dangling his baby and so on. Um, and ped- I wrote, pedophiles are undoubtedly thrilled to be reassured that their impulses to share their bed with their love of little children was a good thing. Um, so I gave a psychological analysis of the documentary. It was called Living with Michael Jackson. It was produced by Britain's Granada Television, and it aired on ABC on February 6, 2003. And um, that's where I got the 18 reasons to remove Michael Jackson's children from. And so I talk about um, I am Peter Pan. Jackson was, um, you know, seemed to be out of touch with reality. He wasn't really saying in the documentary, I'm like Peter Pan. He was saying, I am Peter Pan. Then Bubbles the Chimp uh, is now in in an animal sanctuary because he wasn't well enough cared for by Michael Jackson. And then I talked about um, Michael Jackson having his own history of being abused by his father, certainly physically abused, and there is, there's no doubt that he was sexually abused by somebody or some bodies as he was a child as, as well. Um, also, uh, his psychosexual development was stunted um, in addition to being sexually abused by the fact that when he went on tour 
When he was very young, about five years old, he went on tour with his brothers as part of the Jackson Five, and he used to be the attraction for his brothers to bring women back to the room. And the women, the, the brothers would have sex with these women and his father as well. And so Michael was told to pretend that he was sleeping. He was in a bed uh, in the room and, um, you know, his brothers and father were having sex with all these groupies and he was told to pretend he was sleeping, close his eyes and all of that. Well, needless to say, that kind of repeated trauma, when a little boy can't understand what this is about, it seems like sex is violent if you don't. You know, if you're that age and you can't understand it. So that is why he, his psychosexual development was stunted, because having sex seemed like a very scary, dangerous, violent thing. Then I talked about his father, uh, all kinds of other things that his father did, making, um, teasing him about his appearance and so on. And then I talked about um, number six reason was about Paris's birth. Uh, because Michael had talked about how um, he snatched her and her placenta and took her home because he was scared they were going to give him bad news because she had been born, come, come out, she came out the wrong way when she was born. They, that's what, how they described it, the wrong way. Then, um, then there's, there were pictures in the documentary of his, um, pawning his daughter off on his employees when she wanted his attention. Talked about um, also about blanket and um, the things self contradictions. Um, the mothers failing to protect them, which is really kind of interesting because as I'm going to talk about later. I mean, the reason why I'm talking about Michael Jackson today is because um, there has just been a documentary that aired called Leaving Neverland by two grown accusers of uh, child sexual abuse. So that's why I'm going back over this history because, um, because indeed, you know, there was a reason. Anyhow, the bottom line, let me just cut to the chase here because I mainly want to talk to you about the, the television show that aired uh, last night and the night before. And um, just suffice it to say, there were 18, 18 reasons, and included amongst these 18 was um, how he was acting on the, uh, the uh, Living with Michael Jackson video um, with a child called Gavin Arvizo. Gavin... Um, Gavin was a 13-year-old boy, and he um, was in this video with Michael, and, um, well, he was actually, he was 12 at, at that time, and he had suffered from cancer, and that's how he got to meet Michael. And in the video, he was leaning on Michael Jackson, looking up at him like a lovesick pup puppy, holding hands with him, all in front of the cameras, and Gavin talked about having slept in Michael Jackson's bed. And he said that Michael said, if you love me, you'll sleep in the bed. Well, that language is classic pedophile language. If you love me, you'll sleep in the bed. If you love me, you'll perform oral sex on me. If you love me. I mean, that's the, the way that pedophiles manipulate children into doing all these different sex acts. And, um... And so I, I went on about that, and bottom line, I held a, um, I held a press conference on this date 
on February, um, what did I say? February, a week after the documentary aired, so it was February 11th, 2003, and at the, I read the whole 18 uh, points at the press conference, and at the end of the conference, I walked into Child Protective Services in Los Angeles with the cameras following my every step. So, um, after that, um, that it, as it turned out, it was this Complaint. This press conference, followed by me submitting this, compl- this second complaint to Child Protective Services, that ultimately got them to investigate Gavin, which ultimately made the trial happen. The trial of Michael Jackson uh, that followed shortly after. So, um, so needless to say, from the early '90s to the trial and. Basically, until his death, I was very much involved with this whole story. And so the fact that now there is a um, documentary called Leaving Neverland, produced by Dan Reed, uh, that follows the stories of Wade Robson and James Safecheck is a very important part and update to the story. Because... Um, both Wade Robson and James Safechuck now have come forward and acknowledged their abuse, by their sexual abuse by Michael Jackson. Even though they had um, testified, both of them at the first trial, the first trial was um, when Jordy Chandler accused Michael. Not, it wasn't really, a, well, it was... Um, it was it was after he was accused by Jordy Chandler and and before they settled. Um, these the two of them the two of them testified, and then in the le- later trial, uh, the actual trial, then um, Wade Robson um, testified, and so people are trying to say today that oh well they testified and and they said that nothing happened with Michael Jackson and them he didn't touch them. Um, and so now they're coming out and they're saying that he did sexually abuse them and they just want money and blah, blah, blah. Well, if you watch this documentary, which presumably will be on again repeatedly, um, you will see for yourself, you don't really have to be a psychiatrist to see that each of these young men at this point, young men, um, are telling the truth. And uh, it's very painful and hard for them to tell the truth. But their words um, are credible and their emotions are credible. You see them struggling on camera with emotions, particularly at certain parts of their stories. And there is no doubt that what they are saying now is true. So when we come back, I will take you through some of the highlights of this documentary, which was incredibly well produced. And I will give you some examples of the painful impact of sexual abuse on a child and how brave it is for them to come forward now. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask 
the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about Michael Jackson, putting him on my couch, going behind the mask, because we have just uh, seen, hopefully you saw it, if you didn't, please, well, I'm sure it's going to (laughs) be, it was on HBO, and I'm sure they're going to be repeating it, because I'm sure it got incredible ratings, and it will be on the internet somewhere, I trust. Um... So I do recommend that you see it because, um, well, for a number of reasons. First of all, the stories are so incredibly compelling. The emotion of the two young men who are now coming forth and acknowledging that Michael Jackson did sexually abuse them for years, for years. And the interesting thing was, um, and that's uh, Wade Robson and James Safechuck, and the interesting thing, well, it's all interesting, But um, what I particularly found interesting was how each of them separately um, told such similar stories. Now, I know um, some of you who don't want to believe that Michael Jackson could have any flaws are thinking to yourself, well, sure, you know, they were producing this documentary and they both talked ahead of time and they all talked about what they were going to say and how they were going to, you know, it would be the same story so that... um, so it would seem true. Well, after this documentary uh, that ran over the last couple of nights, um, part one and part two, it's four hours long altogether, uh, afterwards Oprah had a program in which she interviewed uh, the two young men and the producer of the documentary and had an audience filled with people who were victims of sexual abuse. And so you could tell by their... um, 
body language and the way that the two young men um, were sitting on the stage, that they really didn't have a connection to each other. Um, you know, in a way, it was that they were sort of jealous of the other one or felt, oh, I'm sure they felt empathic, but but that was part of the story, too, that each of them were discarded by Michael at their own time, you know, at, uh, different, at different times, as Michael came up with newer young and younger boys that he made his favorites. And he only came back to these two when he needed them because of Jordy Chandler in 93 um, claiming that he uh, sexually molested him. And then this um, second case with uh, Gavin Arvizo. And um, and so then Michael Jackson went back to these two uh, young men who were still boys at the time. Um, Wade, I mean, uh, Jimmy was a little older than Wade. Um, and, uh, and he then all of a sudden pretended that he wanted to be their friend again because he needed them to testify for him. So, but it was interesting to see that uh, they, although... Although on the one hand, they would feel empathic because they knew the pain that the other one was going through. There was kind of a coldness, a distance between the two of them. And yes, I know you could say, well, they were just acting. That's how they were told to act, like they didn't know each other. But really, um, there's no way that they could have coordinated the details. And you, again, as I was saying earlier, you could tell by their body language their uh, breathing, their the words they used, and just the way the whole story fit together, um, that this was, they weren't making it up. So let me tell you a little bit about each of them. Wade um, met Michael when he was seven years old, and he was sexually abused until he was 14. And... Um, He met him because Wade comes from Australia, and he um, was uh, he was the uh, in a family of three children, and he was kind of a his mother described him as a sensitive child, and he who liked books and music and dance more than football, and he didn't have anyone to play with. This is Wade I'm talking about because they lived kind of in the middle of nowhere on three acres and in Australia. And so he was, uh, you kind of got the impression he was kind of a sad little boy or, or, as she said, sensitive. And then one day she bought the music video of the making of Thriller. And his life changed. Um, He said, "It, it set me on fire watching, I watched it over and over and he started copying the dance moves. He plastered his walls with images of Michael Jackson. And then when he was five years old, he and Michael Jackson was on a, his Bad tour for the album Bad, um, he came to Australia and Wade entered in a dance competition. And the first prize was to meet Michael Jackson. Now, he was only five years old at the time, and the competition, you had to be at least seven or eight to be in the competition. But they let him dance just for the fun of it. 
And then it turned out that he was so good, this was at Target, <laughs> he was so good, the uh, owner or the manager of Target said, if I didn't declare him the winner, I wouldn't have gotten out of here alive. Because he was amazing, really amazing. Um, at five years old, I mean, first of all, he had copied Michael's dance move down to the exact details. I mean, because you can imagine that's what he was doing every day, watching this video and copying all his dance moves. But he was an adorable kid. Both of them were adorable little kids. And, um, and so he won. And then he eventually got to meet Michael Jackson. Now, Jane Safechuck, he grew up in Simi Valley in Los Angeles, and um, he also came from a middle-class family, and um, he, but but he got to meet Michael in a slightly different way. Um, His family met an agent who took on James, or Jimmy, and so he became a model and and was an actor, and he became, he, he met Michael, um, in a Pepsi commercial, and he said he was a huge fan and so on. So that was the first time that he ever met him. And um, but so, so with both of them, even though it was a slightly different way of meeting him, both of them, you will notice, had, were interested in performing. Both of the kids were interested in performing. And that was, um, and both of their mothers, I could go on forever about their mothers. Both of their mothers um, were stage mothers. And this is such, this is a typical, typical uh, pattern that Michael had, first of all. Not that all the boys that he met wanted to be performers, because like Gavin, for example, um, you know, he met him because Gavin had cancer and it was through some charity and there's no wasn't necessarily clear that Gavin wanted to be a performer, but but the pattern that was clear was that the mothers, whether they were stage mothers or they were just like overwhelmed by Michael's celebrityhood, by the um, Neverland being a fantasy world, um, and just a life that they never had before because, you know, Gavin's family was really poor, and um, Wade and Jimmy's families were, you know, middle class. They weren't really poor, but uh, but they were <laughs> they were um, at the level of being really overwhelmed. They, you know, well, who wouldn't be overwhelmed? No one leaves. No one lives except Michael Jackson at um, that kind of level, especially Neverland. That kind of level of luxury and. and he would take them on uh, his tours and all of that. So, so not only were the children um, love-struck, but their parents, and notably their mothers. You know, that's the thing during this, this, um, this documentary that was just getting me, I was yelling at the television set, uh, at the mothers, because um, they were so blind and really, you know, they weren't stupid. These were not stupid. These were fairly sophisticated women, um, not stupid. They, yet they let their children, their, their little boys, be with Michael in his bedroom all by themselves um, and just thought that that was just fine. Because what it meant was 
that they would get to be in Neverland, the whole family, and that the whole family would get paid, expense paid trips, and would get to be, you know, in the lap of a celebrity. Um, Jimmy's mother talked about how she couldn't believe that Michael was, you know, wanted to come to their little house and, uh, you know, was that they just had this modest house in Simi Valley and Michael wanted to come there all the time and Michael was so lonely. I mean, that was one of the ways that Michael groomed these kids by um, at the same time that he had all this luxury and all these toys to play with and and you couldn't have made up um, Neverland, you know, if you were doing a movie and you wanted to make um, a place that would be the most appealing to kids, you would come up with something like like Neverland. I mean, it reminds me of, uh, like, Pinocchio, you know, when the kids go to the, to the island where um, it's all amusement parks and so on. Anyhow, yeah, I'm sure <laughs> probably Michael Jackson saw the film version of Pinocchio. In any case, um, these two young men went on to give a detailed description of how Michael Jackson seduced them, how he would have oral sex with them. First, he would um, talk about, he, he would start by just fondling them, you know, touching them, hugging them, uh, kissing them, then putting his tongue in their mouth. Then, I mean, you know, it was uh, going from first to third base very relatively quickly with considering it's uh, little kids. I mean, he... It's just, it was, and the pattern, as I was starting to say, the pattern of these different sexual acts that Michael Jackson performed on these children and had them perform on him. Um, You know, for example, uh, he would perform oral sex on them when they were sleeping and then tell them about it and then have them um, and then do it when they were awake. And, you know, he would say, um, I want to kiss it. So, like, after he had been kissing them and, you know, becoming becoming their best friend, like, overnight or within, within an hour, these kids felt like, as did their families, like they were best friends. And so, um, so all of, I mean, that's how he made all of these different physical things feel natural. And he told them how much he loved them. He told them how... God brought you to me. We're special. You're, you know, this is a special relationship. People do this when they're in love. There's nothing wrong with this. Of course, then, for example, Wade, I mean, he kind of <laughs> contradicted himself because um, he also would say, like he told Wade, for example, um, don't ever tell anybody about this because if you do, we'll both be in jail for the rest of our lives and we'll never be able to see each other again. So that was, you know, that was down the line after he had already gotten him indoctrinated to doing all of these sexual activities. And um, they really, (laughs) he managed to get the children. You know, Michael Jackson was, did have a very vulnerable side. He was like a little child. He, um... You know, with <laughs> he was like a little child, and and as I was saying earlier, you know, the stunted um, psychosexual development. But at the same time, he was sly enough and had the mind of a pedophile 
to know how to get the children to go along with all these sexual acts, how not to tell anybody. I mean, both of these boys didn't tell their families, didn't tell anyone until this, um, well, this uh, documentary actually Wade had told um, a couple of years earlier because he filed a lawsuit. They both uh, filed lawsuits against Michael in recent years. But now they're, you know, they're, they're young men, um, but they didn't tell anyone until these recent years. Like, they, in other words, they didn't tell anyone when it was going on. And they didn't even tell anyone um, during the time of the, when Jordy Chandler came out and accused Michael of sexual abuse, they both still denied that Michael had ever done anything to them. Because, as you can imagine, when this hit the news, uh, their parents, you know, were, were asking them, well, did he do anything like this to you? Did he ever do this to you? Because, you know, after they heard that it had happened to another little boy. And they protected him, protected Michael. They felt that they, well... They protected Michael, and um, they also protected themselves because they were afraid that, you know, that something horrible would happen to them, too. And even more importantly, they both were hanging on, even though Michael abandoned them at some point because he went towards new children like Macaulay Culkin, for example, um, so he, and he left them hanging. He got them to fall madly in love with them, with him. One of the boys described it as, uh, being like, um, being like being on a date, you know, being, um, falling, falling in love, like the beginning stages of love. And you, you know, you would do anything for the person and you would have a lot of sex at the beginning of a relationship and so on. Um, he, he, Michael made the, these boys feel like they were in love and that he was in love with them and that they were going to be uh, together forever. In fact, he called Wade Little One and told him that he call, and called him son, like he was going to be his son. And so he gave Wade the fantasy um, that one day he would come to live with Michael Jackson uh, and be his son. And, you know, all of this, uh, and, of course, when they did finally, the uh, Australian family, or at least the mother and the sister and Wade, came to America because, mainly to be with Michael Jackson, but also so that Wade could develop his career because he was becoming a choreographer and he, they knew that you know, his career would be um, better in L.A. But it was really, deep down, it was to be with Michael Jackson. And when they finally got to L.A., they had a very uh, unfortunate surprise. When we come back, we'll talk about that surprise and some others. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talking about Michael Jackson, putting him on my couch, going behind the mask, and in particular doing this today because of the documentary that just aired called Leaving Neverland, which tells the story of um, Wade and Jimmy, uh, Wade Robson and James Safechuck, who uh, were abused for many years, sexually abused for many years by Michael Jackson. And they are finally coming forward and telling their stories. And their stories are riveting. And I was starting to say before the break about um, Wade, who came from Australia, that when he finally, you know, Michael, his mother talked about, Wade's mother talked about how Michael would call Australia and Wade would be on the phone with him for five or six hours a day for two years, like this was at the beginning of their relationship. I mean, that's how, you know, you kind of wonder, how did Michael find the time to make his music if he's on the phone five or six hours a day with his latest um, boyfriend? Um, so, I mean, that's the kind of thing. And he also spent a lot of time at the beginning with Wade, too. And then, as I've been saying, he gradually... Um, dumped them, uh, except for when he needed them, to testify uh, in the cases that came against him. So when Wade's family came to, moved to uh, Los Angeles to further his career as a choreographer and mainly so that he could be close to Michael Jackson, his whole life was predicated from the time he was basically five or at least seven when he got to meet Michael, years old, um, and he was, as I said, he was abused from 7 to 14, uh, his whole life was predicated on, on Michael Jackson, on becoming Michael Jackson's son, and um, Michael Jackson promised him, and he also promised, Michael Jackson made lots of promises to both of them, 
Uh, he promised both of them that they were going to be directors better than Spielberg. And he did different things with each of them to keep up, to keep that promise alive or to keep that hope alive. And so when Wade and his mother and sister came to Los Angeles um, and thought, of course, that, you know, after Michael had invited them and spent all this time on the phone for years and all of this, and they had been getting the star treatment every time they had visited him in the past here or he had come to Australia, when they got here, they had a surprise, and that was that instead of being brought to Neverland, where, which is what usually happened, they were brought to the Oakwood Apartments. <laughs> now, the Oakwood Apartments are um, places where, you know, you, kind of, you rent it by the month, and month by month, and they are apartments where a lot of people in the entertainment industry stay or people who come to L.A. who want to be in the ent- entertainment industry stay. Um, when things are very up in the air and it's supposed to be, it's like temporary ha- housing. And, um, and, so, and then they, he, Michael rented them a car instead of sending a chauffeur or coming for them himself. So all of a sudden, you know, here they move to the U.S., leaving... Totally destroying their family, by the way. They left um, his older brother in in Australia and um, his father, Wade's father in Australia. And the father ended up hanging himself, you know, a few years later. Uh, he missed his family. You know, he had lost his family. Michael sort of absconded with his family. And... Um, and his father developed uh, emotional problems, and he was diagnosed as bipolar. I'm not sure that he really was or whether maybe he was using... Uh, he, he was just distraught. Whatever diagnosis it was, he was just distraught and depressed, and he ended up hanging himself. And um, so the whole family, you know, from the time that Wade was five years old, Michael, or at least seven years old, Michael destroyed his family. And um, it's so really sad. He also destroyed Jimmy's family, not quite as uh, dramatically, but his Jimmy's parents are um, uh, distanced from each other, sleeping in different beds, separate beds and all of that. And um, they were to some degree before, but it got worse because, because not only did Michael Jackson seduce the boys, but he seduced, not sexually, but emotionally seduced the mothers. They were, you know, at his mercy um, and letting their boys, you know, do whatever Michael wants them to do. So um, same thing, as I said, happened to Jimmy. Jimmy told this story on the, the documentary of how he and Michael had a wedding. And, um, you know, a private wedding. I mean, it was, it was before, <laughs> it was be- well, it wouldn't have been allowed anyway, even. <laughs> it was before gay weddings, but, um, but in any case, uh, Jimmy was still a child, so this wouldn't have been allowed no matter what. And, but they had a private ceremony where they made vows to each other. So, you know, because, it's interesting, because Jimmy was older um, than Wade, instead of... Uh, Michael using the uh, ploy 
that he was his father. I mean, I, I, he did use that to some, or that was implied to some extent at the beginning. But then as Jimmy got older, uh, it was more like we're going to take vows and be married to each other rather than just a father-son kind of relationship. And um, so when, when Jimmy described this taking of vows on the documentary, he, uh, while he was holding the ring, showing the rings to the camera, he was just, you could tell how torn up he was inside and how he was remembering the, this night when they pledged their love to each other and how painful it was to, um, to be separated from Michael and to realize, you know, what it was that it wasn't love, that it was, although I think both of these young men are still holding on, they still want to believe that it really was love, that Michael really loved them. They, they know that they loved Michael. Um, so it's very painful for them not only to tell these intimate sexual details uh, about anal penetration and Michael putting his tongue in their anus and, and um, you know, having oral sex and making them do all these things to him, making them twist his nipples and then Michael would masturbate. I mean, you know, that's the kind of, that's an example of the kind of things that I was saying where they both had the same story and no, I don't think it was a made up thing that they, that they rehearsed. Um, because when you, because it was embarrassing, it was humiliating. It was whenever a child is sexually abused, they feel guilty. They feel like it's somehow their fault. Although of course it isn't. They were just little children. And then to the extent that they, um, blame their mothers and they do, you could tell that you know, certainly by now they have realized that um, their mothers didn't protect them. And so there is a wedge that was drawn between them and their mother. And, uh, and certainly their fathers, that was even worse. And um, so you can, you know, it's, so it was humiliating to talk about these really intimate uh, sexual activities, <laughs> behaviors that went on over years and years and years. It wasn't like, oh, well, yes, he did this to me once, and so then I told him I didn't like it, so we never had anything sexual to do with each other again. No. Um, they each said how there would be these sexual rituals every night that they were with them, the, um, the same kinds of patterns. I mean, it kind of, uh, it kind of matured or you could say that, uh, it kind of moved to a higher or more intimate level as they got older, uh, that they each weren't that happy about. But, um, but, um, this, you know, so it was, it was humiliating to talk about all of these intimate things on, in a documentary that they knew would be aired in, um, national and international really, uh, television. And, um, so it was, you know, and, 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 and for example, Wade said, like when he lied uh, at the trial in 2005, the trial that I had brought about uh, in, re in regard to Gavin, that um, part of the reason he lied, besides feeling like he had to protect Michael and, and hoping that maybe since Michael had come back to him to get him to testify, that maybe Michael now would stay with him and they could still be. Uh, close friends, you know, or sexual partners again. I mean, they were still hoping this till the end. And so, um, 
So it was just really very uh, difficult to, I mean, he, he talked about, in fact, that, that one of the reasons why he lied or, you know, and, and said that Michael didn't do anything to him in 2005 on, at the, when he was on the stand was that he didn't want people all over the world knowing that he had done these intimate kinds of sexual things with Michael Jackson, that it would be humiliating. And so now, yes, are there, there the um, status of their cases against Michael are that they are on appeal. The judge had thrown them out because of uh, tech, a technicality, the time, the statute of limitations and things like that. But, but so they are on appeal. So the Jackson family is trying to say that, um, that they are only saying these things now in this documentary so that they're, they can win their cases and so that they can get money. When in fact, it's really the opposite that, first of all, they don't know whether their cases are going to go anywhere. And second of all, um, and they didn't have to go on a documentary to um, win their case. You know, if the case was going to be allowed to go to trial, they could have said all of these things at the trial uh, and not ahead of time. But, um, but it's really the family, the Jackson family, that is trying to protect the golden goose, which is Michael's uh, music that still brings the family tons and tons of money. And they are trying to protect that by saying, by suing HBO and saying that all the things that happened in this documentary were lies. Well, what I say to you is watch the documentary uh, yourself and look at how real their feelings are. Look at the stories. Look at the the pattern that Michael had. um, And you decide for yourself. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 